Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. You've proven yourself over and over and over again. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask you to prove your faithfulness once again. You promised to your disciples, as you sent them to make disciples, you said, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord, we want to grow as disciples now. We want to be equipped. We want our faith to be strengthened. And you promised that you would be with us in that endeavor. And so we ask that you would be with us now. Speak to us. Change us. Fill us with your spirit so that we can glorify you. We want you, God, to be pleased. We want you, Father, to be praised, to be glorified. We want your worth to be seen and treasured this morning. And we can't do it without the help of your spirit. So we ask now in faith and in the name of Jesus, amen. Near, near the end of the climactic battle scene uh, in the movie adaptation of C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia, near the end of that film, the Telmarine army is fleeing. They're running. They've been beaten in battle, and they come to a bridge at the river Baruna, and their path is blocked by a little girl, a little girl named Lucy, who's a little bit older than, than our Lucy here. And this little girl, Lucy, is standing in front of this huge army. And she stands all by herself on this bridge, and she draws her little dagger and smiles. The confusion on the faces of the confused soldiers quickly changes to fear, because Lucy is not alone. A massive lion steps onto the scene directly behind her, and immediately the viewer understands the source of her courage. There is an untamable power that is with her. And she knows that she will not need to raise a finger to rout the enemy. His roar will turn their cold hearts to water and their knees to jelly. This scene is not technically in the book, if you've read the originals. But it does a good job of accurately capturing Lewis's portrayal of the power, the matchless power of this great lion, Aslan. This beloved children's story is really doing something significant. It's hinting at an eternal truth. A truth that God's people have known and believed since the time of the patriarchs. A truth that is proclaimed triumphantly by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, not only is God for us as his children whom he loves, God is also with us. The presence of God with his people is a glorious truth and it is a source of courage a source of comfort, and it is a guarantee of his protection and his provision and his blessing. Abraham came to know and rest in this blessing. As Abimelech recognized back in chapter 21, God is with you in all that you do. But Abraham's journey is complete, and now Isaac is the bearer of the promise. And like his father before him, Isaac's faith was going to be tested. Would he walk by faith? Would he pass the test? Would he find success in the end like Abraham? Well, in chapter 26, we see God's presence is promised, but God's presence is also doubted. Following his failure, God's presence is proven, and in the end, it is even recognized by Isaac's neighbors. That's your outline for this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down and then clock out for the next 45 minutes. God's presence is promised, doubted, proven, 
and then recognize. Start with me in verses 1 through 6. We see God's presence is promised as he tells Isaac, I will be with you. Starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to, you, to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. We see the promise of God's presence in verses 1 through 6, and it all sounds very familiar for us, doesn't it? Once again, there's a famine in the land. You remember that happened to Abraham back in chapter 12. Once before, Abraham had fled from this famine to Egypt, seeking relief, seeking uh, food and water for his family and his herds and his flocks. But if you remember, back in Egypt, Abraham's faith had faltered. He had passed off his exceptionally beautiful wife, Sarah, as his sister out of fear, fear that someone would kill him to get to her. We see that Isaac now faces a similar challenge. There's a famine in the land, and he's a nomad like his father. He picks up his tents, and he's now on the move, and Moses tells us he's passing through Gerar, the land of the Philistines, where Abimelech was king. You remember there, too, his father had once sojourned, and there in Gerar, his father had repeated the whole wife-as-sister deception. Abraham was a man of faith who in the end passed the greatest test when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, but his life was not without moments of weakness. And we're reminded here as the chapter begins of some of the circumstances that surrounded two of Abraham's mistakes. But here in Gerar, God appears to Isaac. And just as God once spoke to Abraham, God now speaks to his son and he makes his will and his word crystal clear. Notice the component, components of God's message to him. He gives him a command in verse 2. The Lord appeared and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt like his father Abraham had done. Instead, he says, Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Like his father before him, Abraham is being called to trust in God's direction. Do you remember back in chapter 12? God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to go where? To a land that I will show you. This is Isaac's call. Abraham had been called to go to Canaan, but Isaac is commanded to remain in Canaan. The, this land had been promised by God to the Abrahamic family, and it is imperative that Isaac stay. Go to the land that I will tell you. Do not go down to Egypt. And he tells him in verse 3, sojourn in this land. I want you to stay here. Stay here, Isaac. But he doesn't just give him a command. He also gives him some assurance in verse 3. Look at what he says. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. Stay here, Isaac, and I will be with you. 
And I will bless you. Like the call of Abraham back in chapter 12, the command given to Isaac is clothed with a promise. I will be with you. I will bless you. No matter what the future holds, Isaac, it's going to be okay because I, the God of your father, am with you. And I'm with you to bless you. Although staying in a famine-stricken land, and although he was a foreigner and there was great risk in staying, the presence of God was to be Isaac's confidence. I will be with you. Now I want you to think for a minute, what, what does this promise mean? If your mind is engaged, I hope it is. If your heart is engaged this morning, if you're thinking along with me critically, if you maybe read the, these verses this week, you might think about it. What does this promise mean, I will be with you? If you're like my kids around the dinner table, you would ask, well, isn't God everywhere all the time? Because if he is, does this promise really mean anything special? Well, in one sense, God is omnipresent. That's the big word. He is all present, everywhere present, at all times and in all places. Psalm 139.7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. There's nowhere. He continues, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In a spatial sense, there is nowhere that God is not. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. A.W. Tozer described the universe as a bucket, a bucket that is submerged in the ocean called God. God is not in the universe. The universe is in God. He fills it. Jeremiah 23, 24 says this. God says, do I not fill heaven and earth? There's nowhere you can escape God's presence. One author described it. He said, said it this way. If God were to wear an overcoat, the universe would be in his pocket. God is much bigger and cannot be contained by this universe. In a spatial sense, there is nowhere that God is not. But... At the same time, God does not act in every place in the same way. He is uniquely with his children, not just in a spatial sense, but in a personal sense. And his active personal presence means that he is present to save and to protect and to empower and to bless. And this is what Cain lamented losing back in Genesis chapter 4. Remember, God sent him away because he killed his brother. And Cain lamented in Genesis 4, 14, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. He knew that God's personal presence was not something he was going to enjoy in the same way that he had previously. This is what was promised to Joshua as he prepared to enter the, the promised land in Joshua 1.5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That's God's promise to Joshua. I will be with you. This is what was later celebrated by David, those comforting words from Psalm 23 that we, that we all know so well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It is this personal, protective, providing sense of God's presence that is promised to Isaac. I will be with you. 
Stay in the land, Isaac. Trust me. I will take care of you. This assurance is followed up by an affirmation of the original promise made to Abraham. God has not given up on his plan to bless and to give the land and to provide blessing for all the world. We see in verses 3 through 4. He says, for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. It's a big promise. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I said I was going to do this, swore it by an oath, and I'm sticking to my word. That's the affirmation of the promise, the assurance God gives him. I will multiply your offspring, verse 4, as the stars of heaven. And will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I've got big plans, Isaac. And I've got big plans that I'm going to accomplish through you and your children. So trust me. Trust me. Here God repeats the famous covenant promises that were once sworn to Abraham. And it is affirmed as he speaks to Isaac. God had bound himself to Abraham's descendants by an oath. And Abraham by his obedience, had bound himself to God's promise. We see this in verse 5. God is committed to do this because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and laws. I promised myself to Abraham. He bound himself to me. This is going to happen. And this revelation from God is really an invitation to Isaac. It's an invitation to Isaac to follow in the footsteps of Abraham. Would Isaac heed the call of God? The implication is that continued blessing is available if Isaac will, like his father, trust and obey. It's that simple. You know, the word of God always calls us to faith and obedience. No less now than when God spoke to Isaac. When God speaks to us today through his word, we are always called to faith and obedience. Will we obey his commands? Will we trust his promises? Every day our faith in God's word is tested and proven by our actions. We see this in Isaac's life. And initially, Isaac responds to this charge with obedience. Verse 6, Isaac settled in Gerar. That's exactly what God told him to do. Sojourn in this land. Stay here, and I will be with you. And initially, Isaac says, okay. But his faith and obedience would be tested in several ways. God's God's presence has been promised But secondly, we see that God's presence would be doubted. We see this in verses 7 through 11 as Isaac faces the first test. And sadly, he does not pass the test. It leads to compromise and a familiar deception. Look at verses 7 through 11. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, oh no, we've seen this movie before, haven't we? A couple times. He said, she is my sister. Why did he say that? Moses tells us, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? 
One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Rebecca's exceptional beauty <clears throat> made Isaac nervous. He was afraid of losing not just his wife, but his own skin. And sadly, he repeats the sin of his father. He adopts the deceitful strategy of telling everyone that she was his sister. Now, why is this such a problem? Well, obviously, lying is sin. We know that that does not please God. It's immoral. But here in this story, we see more than that. This sin, this bad fruit of lying, is simply simply a response to what's in Isaac's heart. It's a manifestation. It's revealing what's on the inside. It's revealing his fear. That's the root issue. This lie was cowardly. It reveals unbelief, not to mention selfishness. To save his own skin by throwing his wife under the bus, losing her. Almighty God had told him to stay. Almighty God had told him that he would be with him and bless him and do great things through him and his descendants. And they don't have any descendants yet. But the potential threat posed by the Philistines exposed the weakness of Isaac's faith. He had believed and stayed like he was supposed to. He was quick to believe, but his faith turns out to be mingled with doubt and fear. Just like us, right? What you believe will be tested. And what you really believe will be proven in those moments of testing. We say that we believe God will provide. And yet we struggle with anxiety about finances. We say we believe that God is good and God is in control. And yet we are gripped by fear of the unknowns of the future. The what ifs. The maybes. We say we believe Jesus died for our sins and rose again, yet we can't seem to let go of regret and guilt and shame. We say we believe that Jesus is all satisfying, and yet we pursue comfort and ease and pleasure and joy in the things of the world. We say we believe God is holy, and yet we dabble in sin as if it doesn't matter. We can say we believe who God is. We can say we believe what God has said, but do we really? Our actions will reveal what we believe and the strength of our faith in the word of God. And here's the thing. When you pass or fail that test, um, the results of that test are not private. The world is watching. The world is watching, and what we profess to believe will either be seen to be full of power or it will be exposed to be empty hypocrisy. We see that in Isaac's situation. Eventually, his plot was discovered. Abimelech saw Isaac, quote-unquote, laughing with Rebekah, his wife. We see that in verse 8. This is a discreet play on words in the Hebrew language. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter. But we see kind of a discreet notion here. The idea is that Abimelech saw Isaac and Rebekah being playful with one another, enjoying one another in such a way that made it very apparent she was not his sister. Abimelech was born at night, but not last night. And he knew exactly what that meant when he saw them interacting in such a way. Though Isaac was supposed to be the man of God, 
He ends up being rebuked by a pagan king in verses 9 through 10. Abimelech comes and confronts him. She's your wife, he says. How could you say she is my sister? And in verse 10, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. He says, listen, you just put us in grave danger by your deception. What are you doing? Are you trying to wreck us and destroy us? Remember that this same situation has happened before with Abraham. And whether this Abimelech is the same Abimelech who had been similarly tricked by Abraham or whether this Abimelech is simply a title, kind of like Pharaoh or maybe a family name, we don't really know. He could have been the same guy. But at the very least, he knew his history and knew that something like this had happened before, more than 40 years earlier. You remember that Sarah was taken into Abimelech's royal harem, and because of that, God had cursed them. They had experienced barrenness, God's judgment, and Abimelech knew that sinning against God's chosen family would bring disaster on him and his family, and so he's not very happy with Isaac. Here's the sad irony. Rather than bringing blessing to all the families of the earth, including Abimelech's family, Isaac had brought them into grave danger, put them at risk of great judgment. Guilt would have been brought upon them. It's a failure, and it's not a private failure. The weakness of Isaac's faith affected other people, and his hypocrisy was seen. Not only does Abimelech rebuke Isaac, he also issues a warning for their protection. He says no one is to touch her. Here's the amazing thing. Even though Isaac failed, God's grace did not. It's interesting. Did you notice this back in verse 8? Look back. In verse 8 with me, it says, when he had been there a long time. Do you think that Isaac's fears were perhaps unfounded? <laughs> He'd been there a long time, and nothing had happened. Nothing had happened. God had been protecting him the whole time. God's grace was poured out upon this man even though he failed. And God not only protected Rebekah and Isaac by his providence, he also ensures it with a royal decree so that Isaac would know that it would be okay. God didn't need Abimelech to make that decree that no one should touch her, but I think Isaac needed to hear that. And so in God's grace, we have protection for the family. Isaac was afraid, and Abimelech was in the dark and ignorant, But neither of those things kept God from protecting and preserving this family. You know, as you read Genesis and you read the Bible, you start to wonder, why didn't God pick some stronger men, (laughs) right? I mean, Abraham failed, Isaac failed, Jacob's story, as we'll soon see, is littered with unflattering behavior. We know that David fell. We know that Peter denied Christ. But these are the kind of men that God chooses. These are the kind of people that God loves. These are the kind of people that God uses for his glory. The choice of weak material really serves to highlight God's grace and power. And it's the same way with you and me. We all have our failures, our sins, and our weaknesses. And God chooses the weak and the unlikely to display his strength and his grace and his forgiveness and his glory. You see, Isaac failed, but his failure was not greater than God's grace. God protected and preserved him. His grace was made evident. And you know what? Isaac's actually going to get another chance because this is not the only test he's going to face. God's presence had been promised. God's presence was sadly doubted by Isaac. 
in this circumstance, but God's presence was proven. We see this in verses 12 through 25. Follow along as I read. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled, the, filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. The first test he faced was that he was afraid somebody might kill him to get his wife. The second test he faces is opposition and resentment from some jealous neighbors. Isaac experienced great material blessing. God had said, I'll bless you. Even though it's a famine, I will bless you. Consider, a hundredfold crops, that kind of return in the midst of a famine year, that's unprecedented. Herds and flocks and servants growing in abundance, He's becoming very prosperous and rich. But this miracle of God, this blessing brings resentment and opposition. The neighbors are jealous of his growing prosperity. They're filled with envy. And so they resort to vandalizing his wells. They're dumping rocks and dirt into them so that he can't get water. Now, if you need to water your flocks and your herds and your servants and you have this growing enterprise, this big household, you need water. It's crucial in times of famine. You can't just go down to the river. The river's dried up. These wells, is what, that's what they depended on for life. But Isaac responds peaceably, and he just moves on. But every time he finds water and digs a new well, the Philistines would claim it was theirs. So he would move on and dig another one. But the same thing happened again. And he actually names these wells after this conflict. Isek means conflict. Sitna means enmity, the fact that he's having major problems feuding with the neighbors. But finally, he was able to dig a well that they did not dispute, and this one he named Rehoboth, which means room. And it was truly a miracle. Think about this. They're in a time of famine. God says, stay in the land. They need water, and every time they get water, somebody else takes it from them, but he never goes to Egypt. He stays where he's supposed to be, like God said. And every time he puts the shovel into the dirt, they find water. 
He can do no wrong. Everywhere he turns, God provides for them. It's truly a miracle. Even though they're in leftover land, they keep going to the spots that nobody else wants. And even though it's in a time of famine, God is constantly providing them water. And Isaac acknowledges that the provision of water comes from God. He says, the Lord has made room for us. He sees that. God is proving that he is with Isaac. Although Isaac had failed the first test, we see now that his faith is growing stronger. Isaac could have fled. He could have left that region. But he stayed, as God had said, and he persevered. Even despite the opposition. Even despite what you could call persecution and antagonism. He stuck it out, and he saw God's faithfulness proven. Like we sang this morning, Jesus, Jesus, I've proved you over and over again. I've, tr- I've trusted you, and you've come through every time. If you trust God and obey him, that doesn't mean things will always be easy. God didn't say, stay in the land, and you'll have no trials. He says, stay in the land, and I'll be with you. In the trials. That's a big difference. If you intend to trust God and obey Him, you are going to face opposition. You are going to experience trials. You may experience antagonism from other people. There will be difficulty. But God desires more than just initial obedience that taps out once things get difficult. God desires to see perseverance. Momentary initial obedience is not enough. Genuine faith clings like a pit bull to the promises of God and doesn't let go. That's what God desires to see. And this kind of faith can expect to see God come through. He always does. Isaac could say, Lord, I've proved you or and or. I stayed like you said and you came through. You are with me. Like his father Abraham, Isaac had stumbled in the beginning, but like Abraham also, he persevered in the end and passed the test. And God was pleased by his faith. That very night, it says in verse 24, God appears to him again. And now the promised blessing that was once future, remember God had said back in the beginning, I will be with you. Now it's affirmed in the present tense. He says, do not be afraid. Not I will be with you. He says, I am with you. I am with you. This promise of potential blessing, this promise of God's future provision is now being realized and confirmed in the present. He is with him. And Isaac embraces God's promise and faith. Like his father Abraham had done at key turning points in his life, Isaac builds an altar to commemorate the word of the Lord and to offer worship to him. This is the place where God kept his promises to us, kids. That's what Isaac could tell his descendants to come. He could look at his servants and say, this is the place where God confirmed his word to us. And God deserves worship because of how faithful he has been to us. This altar would be a landmark on Isaac's journey of faith and a monument to God's promise to be with him. God's presence had been experienced. It had been proven to Isaac. This brings us to our final point this morning in verses 26 through 33. God's presence has been promised, doubted, proven, and it's finally recognized. This is the resolution to the conflict in verses 26 through 33. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuza, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly, here's those words, 
that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have, not, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we found water. Once again, God's providing. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. You see, not only did Isaac recognize God's blessing and acknowledge it by the building of an altar, but the neighbors have noticed as well. The people who had resented him and sent him away cannot help but see the blessing of God upon him. So they come seeking peace, seeking to establish a covenant with him, a non-aggression pact. He's getting stronger and stronger, and at this point, they decide you know what, if you can't beat him, join him. We better be friends with this guy because God is with him. And Isaac is understandably skeptical at first. What are you guys up to? You guys hate me. You sent me away. What's the purpose of you coming to me? And Abimelech says, oh, no, we're friends. You're my buddy. And it's understandable that Isaac was skeptical because Abimelech's claims of treating him well seemed to be kind of a stretch considering that everyone was jealous and they'd sent him away and vandalized his wells. But Abimelech speaks the truth when he says this, We see plainly that the Lord is with you. One hundredfold crops in time of famine, exponentially increasing flocks and herds, every hole you dig in the desert during famine fills with water. How else can we explain this? God is with you, and we dare not oppose that. What we see here is the literal, a literal example of what we find in Proverbs 16:7. When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Abraham, or Abimelech rather speaks truer than he knows when he concludes, you are now the blessed of the Lord. You are the blessed one, Isaac. In case the reader hasn't realized it yet, Isaac has now fully taken the mantle of his father Abraham. Tested and tried, stumbling at times, but he's walking by faith in the promise and is experiencing the blessing of God. And remarkably, this story ends with yet another successful digging of a well. A chapter that begins with famine, ends with a steady supply of life-giving water for the chosen family. And he names the well Sheba. The city that later developed there was named Beersheba, which means well of the oath. Because Abimelech and Isaac had entered into a treaty. They had made an oath there. And the name of the city commemorated that oath. But even more than that, this place would signify God's faithfulness to his oath. The oath that he swore to Abraham to establish his covenant with him and his descendants to bless them and to bring blessing to all the world through them. God had promised that he would be with Isaac. He declared later in the present tense, I am with you. And now even the neighbors cannot help but acknowledge in the past tense, the Lord has been with you. So let me ask you this morning, what does the promise of God's presence mean to you? What does it mean to you? Do you believe that God will be with you? We find this promise. Jesus says it in the Gospels. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's affirmed for us in the book of Hebrews. Behold, I will never leave you or forsake you. We read of it in Psalm 23. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
The prophet Isaiah records for us the words of God. Though you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Though you go through the fire, it will not consume you. You are mine. I will be with you, says the Lord. If you believe God is with you, don't be afraid of the maybes or the what ifs or the mights. You see, fear and anxiety can paralyze you. It can suck you into sin and compromise and failure. And all of us will be tested. We can sing this morning of our trust in Jesus. We can sing about how firm a foundation we have in the promises of God. We can sing that Christ is our solid rock. We stand on him. Everything else is sinking sand. But there are going to be tests that come. When fears arise in your heart, and they will, when fears arise, what will you do with them? David writes in Psalm 56, 3 through 4, when I am afraid, not if, when, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? To experience fear and anxiety is one thing, and that initial feeling is not sin. Jesus himself experienced a a crushing weight of anxiety and apprehension in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was crucified, it brought him to his knees. Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. So to experience that kind of pressure and even fear and anxiety, that's one thing. But what matters is what you do with those fears. What matters is how you respond to the threat. What matters is how you cope with uncertainty. David acknowledged his fear. When I am afraid, he didn't try to puff his chest up and say, I'm never afraid. I got the no fear bumper sticker on the back. Check it out. I'm not scared of anything. No, he says, when I'm afraid, he was honest. He acknowledged his fears. But what he did was he turned to God with those fears. And by focusing on God, the one in whose word he trusted, he wrestled his heart back to a position of faith and trust by comparing the power of God to the power of men. In God I put my trust. What can flesh do to me? You see, the problem that Isaac had and the problem that we often struggle with so much, it's not just that we have fear in our hearts. No, that's not the problem. The problem is that we have a misplaced fear. We fear man more than God. We fear the loss of material possessions more than the loss of eternal reward that comes as we walk by faith. We fear the loss of pleasure more than the loss of integrity. William Gurnall, the Puritan pastor and author wrote, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. And he concludes, one fear cures another. The solution to our fear is a greater fear, to know who our God is and to fear him. David says, what can flesh do to me? I know who God is. If God be for us, Paul writes, who can be against us? Fear reveals that we have a small view of God. And we have come for a moment, catch this, we have come for a moment 
to believe the blasphemous claim that something in creation is more to be feared than the creator? Don't forget who it is who promises to be with you. The little children's story of a massive lion standing behind you, that's just a small, weak little shadow of a much greater biblical truth. The God we serve is the God of all power. He is the creator of all things. He spoke the universe into being. He's the sustainer of all things. He holds the universe together by his will and by his word, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of power who opens prison doors by an earthquake to deliver his servants. Our God is a God of power who opens hard hearts that don't believe, who are enslaved to blindness so that they can accept the free gift of his grace. Our God is the God of power who opens the grave to raise his son from the dead. Our God is the God of all authority. He is the Lord of heaven. The angels do his bidding. The demons tremble before him. As we went through the gospel of Mark, we saw time and time again that people marveled at his authority over the unclean spirits. He's the Lord of all the earth. He sets up one kingdom and he takes down another. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar and the Greeks and the Persians and the Romans and every empire to follow. He's the Lord over all the nations. He's the Lord of the church. It is his body. He is the head. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He's the master. We are the servants. He's the teacher. We are the disciples. He's the king. We are the slaves. He is supreme over all. No one compares to him in greatness. No one compares to him in power. No one compares to him in glory. No one compares to him in wisdom. No one compares to him in strength. He is awesome and glorious over all. So that when Isaiah sees a glimpse of the throne room, he falls on his face. Not because he's like, wow, that's cool, but because he says, woe is me. His fear brings him to his face. He's the sovereign ruler over all. God is sovereign over his creation. He can tell light to exist, and it exists. He can take a rib out of a man and make a woman. He can part the Red Sea. He can feed thousands with only one lunch. He can walk on water and tell the storm to be quiet and to be still. He can tell dead people to raise to life. He is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over people, over their words, their actions, their choices. He's sovereign over time. Every element of history is no surprise to God. All of our days are written from before time in his book. He's sovereign over history, over all things. And this is who our God is. And who are we? We are the church. We are his people. We are his adopted children. We are his body, his bride, his temple, his inheritance. And he will not tolerate the vandalizing of his temple. That should encourage you and give you hope. He is not apathetic toward the needs of his children. He's a good father, not a cruel tyrant. He will not tolerate the injury of his bride. He's a jealous husband. He will not neglect his body, but rather he cares for us and nurtures us so that we grow into maturity. And he will not lose his inheritance. He purchased us with his blood. And Jesus says, no one, no one can take them out of my hand. 
when we forget God or when we have a pitifully small and deficient view of him, it leads to all sorts of foolishness. We need to remember that this is who our God is and he has promised to be with us. John Bunyan once wrote, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's a quote from scripture and then he adds his own little comment. And they that lack the beginning have neither middle nor end. When we do not fear God, it leads us into foolishness, into failure, into sin. One biblical counselor put it this way, fear will keep you from doing things you normally would do. A sinful fear here, a fear of what's out there in the world. Fear will keep you from doing things you normally would do and lead you to do things normally you would never do. So here's the question. What do you fear? Will you surrender to your fears of what's in the world? The what-ifs, the maybes, the threats, the risks? Will you seek to escape and relieve and find relief from those fears through your own efforts? Or will you turn to Christ? Will you seek shelter in him? Will you hold on to your fears and worries and anxieties and allow them to rule you? Or will you fear God and allow that greater fear to displace all lesser fears and rule you? If we give in to a sinful fear, this is unbelief. It means we do not believe God is as big as he really is. And we do not believe what he says. When he promises, I will be with you. And you know what? Just as in Isaac's day, outsiders are watching. People are watching. Parents, your kids are watching. They see how you handle stress and pressure and bad news. Husbands, your wives are watching to see how you will lead, to see where your confidence is. Is it in your own resourcefulness, your own ability to usually figure things out, or is your confidence in God? Kids, your friends are watching. They know you go to church and that you believe in God, but they're watching to see if that really makes a difference in your life. Just as in Isaac's day, outsiders are watching, and this can either bring shame to us and to the name of Christ, or it can bear witness to the world that God is with us. I want our neighbors to say of us, of this church, what Isaac's neighbors said of him. It is evident that God is with you. They didn't say that because he lied and was afraid. They said that when they saw his faith and his perseverance, and as they saw him experience the blessing of God as he obeyed and walked by faith. What do others see when they look at you? Do they see hypocrisy and fear and compromise? Or do they look at you? Do they look at your life? And do they see how great your God is? Friends, believe that God is with you. Believe that his presence is able to protect and sustain and to save. Walk in confident faith. Obey without hesitating. Trust his promises. He's good for it. He'll prove himself to you. Fear God, and you will fear nothing else. For some of you here this morning, some of you here today perhaps are still in your sins, and God is not with you because you're not his child. You're not his disciple. You do not belong to his kingdom. By your unbelief, your independence, you set yourself up as an opponent, as an enemy. 
And if that's the case, then God's presence is not a blessing to you. It's actually a threat. It is a scary thing to be in the presence of God and still be in your sins. His holiness is all-consuming. His righteous wrath against sin cannot be escaped apart from finding shelter in Christ. Some of you this morning are not afraid of God, and you should be. You should be. The gospel is only good news to those who are terrified of God's wrath. And if, if you don't know Christ, I want you to hear me when I say this this morning, that Jesus is returning, and there will be a judgment, and you will answer to him. And God is more righteous and holy than you can possibly imagine. And in his grace, he's giving you time right now, this morning. He's giving you a chance this morning to repent of your sin and to believe, to trust in the gospel so that God's presence becomes a blessing and a joy and a reward rather than a destructive and terrifying experience of wrath and judgment. Jesus came to be Emmanuel, which means God with us, so that we could draw near to God having been cleansed of our sins by his blood. James promises if we draw near to God in repentance and in humility, that he will draw near to us. If you don't know Christ, this is your only hope of salvation, is the fact that Jesus has come and made it possible for you to draw near. You don't have to somehow ascend into his presence. Christ has descended, made himself flesh to dwell among us. He entered into humanity in order to save. We are simply called to believe the gospel, to believe that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and to trust in that to save us. We simply receive that gift by faith. In conclusion, I just want to close by reading a passage that kind of mentioned earlier. God's promise to Israel in Isaiah 43 reveals his care and his love for his children. Fear not, God says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. As you leave today, go with this confidence confidence that God is with you. And in this confidence, give yourself to him fully. Trust, obey, cling to this promise, and you will experience the blessing of God's presence. Would you bow with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to be Emmanuel, God with us. You came to provide salvation, to cleanse us and redeem us so that we could be part of your family, so that we could enjoy the blessing of your presence so that we could be heirs of all your promises. God, strengthen our faith this morning in those promises. Expand our mind to see how great you are. Give us a bigger view of your glory and instill in us a holy fear, a fear that displaces and dispels all other fears. Lord, forgive us for our small faith for our trust in ourselves, for our compromises, for our forgetfulness. I pray, Lord, that you would renew in us faith and fear, a godly fear, so that we would be able to walk by faith and bring you glory. We bring this in, these requests to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.